Hello and welcome to Space Chats. This week I'm with Lou Corbin, who is the director and producer of Morvran, which is a show coming to the space on the 28th of March until the 1st of April. Hello, Lou. Hello. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm all right. Thank you. How are you? I'm very good. Uh, we've been talking before this recording started about your amazing wardrobe which looks like something out of the Narnia books um, and I'm most jealous of. You were saying that there are creatures on there. Are any of them mermaids? Because that would be quite perfect. They aren't mermaids, but they, they kind of look like the goblins out of Labyrinth, which is kind of creepy, but also kind of cool. <laughs> so, yes, Morvran is play about mermaids, and we're going to circle back to that in a bit. First of all, where in the world are you from? How long have you been in London? How long have you been a theatre maker? Let's just have a very, very brief intro into you. Sure. So um, I'm from a little post-industrial town called St. Helens, just outside of Liverpool. Um, it's very sort of one of those post-Thatcher sort of towns with nothing much going on, at least when I was growing up. Um, I've sort of been keeping tabs on things since I left, and it does seem they've got quite a cool um, arts scene going on there now, which is nice to, to see, and lots of stuff going up on in the northwest now, which there wasn't when I was growing up, so it's nice to be sort of witnessing that from afar. Um, I've been living in London since 2019, uh, so four years, and before that I was living in Oxford for about six years. Um, I wasn't at the university, but I was just sort of working in the local arts scene and um, had like a long time wish to move down to London and eventually did that in 2019. Um, so yeah, since then I've just been uh, sort of bopping around trying to meet people and uh, trying to make work. So when you say trying to make work, primarily you're a director, has that been mm. something that you've always focused on or have you uh, tried lots of different things? Are you a director and something else as well? I mean obviously producing as well, but mm. yeah, how, how do you kind of describe describe yourself if, if at all? Yeah, well, when I was a lot younger, I think I thought I wanted to be an actor. Um, and I'm sort of glad that I didn't go into that because I don't think I could deal with all of the pressures that actors deal with. Obviously, there's a lot of pressure and competition that comes with being a director as well. But I think it's uh, being an actor is a whole another level of, of um, you know, trying to sort of make it, as it were, um, and yeah, I'm not sure I could quite handle that. I, I like the sort of um, there's a little bit more agency that comes with being a director, um, although it of course has its own struggles, and you know more creative control um, than than actors. And and I enjoy that sort of you know being able to oversee a piece of work in its entirety um, and sort of have a real you know big impact on on the piece. And I, I started directing in 2016, I think, because I um, I was working in in a, a local venue in Oxford and was um, it's going to sound quite bad, but I was actually seeing quite a lot of work that I didn't like and um, sort of felt, well, I'll have a go at this. You know, it, it can't be it can't be so bad if there's all of this <laughs> sort of you know not amazing work that's being uh produced so I'll have a go and um yeah just kind of like took off from there and found that I really enjoyed it um the first thing that I directed was um uh, the piece that I'd written for my undergraduate degree which was an adaptation of The Tiger's Bride by Angela Carter which is again another fairy tale um but it's actually sort of looking at um 
agency in women. Um, it's it's sort of in itself, it's an adaptation of Beauty and the Beast, but it's sort of flipped on its head so that the, the woman has sort of all the agency in the story. Um, and she actually turns into the beast at the end of the story. Sometimes I think it's a little bit like Shrek, but... <laughs> um, and then after that, we, uh, my company and I did um, Sarah Rule's adaptation of Orlando, which is a book by uh, Virginia Woolf, again, looking at sort of gender and uh, sort of, I mean, there's lots of different ways that you can interpret that story. Um, you can interpret it as sort of um, a feminist piece about the ways in which um, women are expected to act in society and are treated in society as compared to men but there's also sort of a um an interpretation of it that you can take as a a trans story or a non-binary story as well um which is kind of the adaptation that we ended up taking uh, sorry the interpretation that we ended up taking in the end um because it just felt like it was sort of more relevant to conversations that are happening at the moment. So we worked with like the LGBT community up in Oxford to sort of make sure that it was as, you know, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking that, for? That, that it chimed, that it chimed true, that it ran yeah, through. To, the, yeah, yeah, to make sure that yeah. it was truthful and to um, make sure that it was as, as done as well as possible with the sort of those themes in mind. That was quite blathery. <laughs> No, not at all. I'm I'm still just really liking your main reason for, or one of the main reasons for you directing was going, I can do better than that. <laughs> this is ridiculous. Like, come on. I could, yeah. So, I, which I think is a, is a very valid and very good reason to do something. May I, without getting too deep dive into the negative, but w vaguely, what was the sort of thing that you were going, oh, no, not good enough, could do better. I think part of the thing was that I was, because of the, the type of venue I was working in at the time was very, serving a very particular audience of, you know, white middle class people over the age of 60 with, with a lot of money who are a, a, an audience that are easy to come by in a city like Oxford. Um, and I think that's just a lot of that work isn't my taste for one thing so now you have the because we've, we've touched on agency a lot now you have the agency as a director and a producer to choose your work I mean at the moment I'm kind of getting a theme of transformation going between different identities mm. of sort of all the plays we've touched on including Morvran which I say mm. we'll come back to more is that something that you particularly gravitate to or has that been slightly coincidental yeah I think it's kind of subconscious really um after we did Orlando, I sort of was able to then take a step back from it and realize, oh, this is basically the same story as uh, The Tiger's Bride. It's like a love story about um, like two people coming together who are sort of, um, they're sort of both one thing and another. They're both, both characters are sort of between the binaries and sort of a love story between two people like that. Um, so, for example, like the Tiger's Bride, uh, you know, tigers are very, uh, you know, powerful, terrifying creatures, which you might sort of traditionally associate with the masculine. Um, but they're also beautiful, which you might associate traditionally with the feminine. So, you know, you could argue that a tiger is some sort of somewhere between these two binaries and then the, the sort of the lead sort of uh, beauty stand in character as in Beauty and the Beast Beauty um, in Angela Carter's adaptation is sort of also between those sort of binaries of the traditionally masculine and the tra traditionally feminine. Um, and then with Orlando, those things are much more sort of stark. 
um, you have these sort of two characters who could be read as non-binary meeting and, and falling in love. What would you, if you if you were given complete agency, complete free reign, what would you like to make? It's uh, a great question. Um, I have an idea for an adaptation that I'd like to do, which is uh, a novel by Laura Esquivel called Like Water for Chocolate. There's a quite famous movie of it. Um, it's a, a Mexican novel and it's set against the backdrop of the Mexican Revolution. Um, and it's like a magical realist tale about um, a woman who has to be the family cook for um for her family and for everyone who lives on the ranch that their family owns and um, is never allowed to get married and has to look after her um, her mother as she gets older. Uh, something happens when she's born, which means that her emotions are passed into all of the food that she cooks. Um, and then anyone who eats the food that she's, that she's made um, takes on her emotions that she had while she was cooking um, and kind of how that then affects the people around her. Um, yeah, it's sort of a story about sisterhood and family ties and sort of generational trauma as well in a way, um, all sort of set in this quite domestic space, but it sort of celebrates domesticity uh, in a way that kind of traditional sort of feminist stories don't necessarily we have a lot of stories about celebrating um you know female power in where power really means sort of doing typically masculine things and it's like well no there's power in doing sort of typically feminine things as well and and sort of celebrating sort of care and community which I think Morverin does as well and uh, my big idea for the show is that I'd like to actually do the cooking live and then the audience would eat the food as well. And it would be, you know, the celebration of, of food as a symbol of kind of bringing people together and of love. Yeah, that's what I'd do if I had an unlimited budget. <laughs> this is very exciting. Firstly, I have not heard of this book and I would like to go and read it because it sounds very, very good, very at my street as well. Also, uh, yeah, I didn't, I, I know you're a bit outside of this as a director, but I did not know you were into the cooking on stage thing, mm -hmm. um, which <clears throat> I, I love it when people cook on stage. It's like, oh, good. Yes, it's like a real thing happening. And also, it's not just characters standing two meters apart from each other, like speaking for half an hour. They're actually doing a thing. And, you know, because that's what we do in our our real lives yeah um, well I'm sort of really interested in like the ways we can bring the audience into the action of the play because I've seen a lot of you know um immersive shows that um have a cooking aspect or a dining aspect to them but often you're eating the food and then you're seeing the show um and I'd like to sort of see if there's a way of kind of combining the two at the same time very nice um so turning slightly towards Morverin, first of all, um, to talk about Marvelous Machine, um, your theatre company. Uh, can you tell me more about the the ethos behind that? What what what's the ethos behind the name? And also, why did you why did you want to yeah set set up a company specifically for your work? Hmm. Uh, well, the name came from um, the Tiger's Bride, uh, which is our first show. Um, it's it's a line in in the original short story that Carter uses to describe one of the characters who is a wind-up doll and I just thought it sounded like a cool name for a fifth company um but also there's there's something about kind of like the way that 
we sort of let the audience sort of see the craft of of making a play. Um, I think probably less so with Morverin. I think this is our sort of most naturalistic play that we've done so far. But in our previous work, we've had um, a lot of sort of puppetry and shadow puppetry and um, we've had live music on stage. Um, we do have ambitions to, to sort of build on Morverin further down the line in order to sort of integrate those things a little bit more. Um, but for now, it's just a slightly more sort of stripped back kind of version of what we want to do with it eventually. Yeah, so on that note, tell me a little bit more about, about the play, about the, the story of Morverin. So um, it's sort of a belated coming of age story. Um, it's about a woman who moves away from home when she was 15 because of something traumatic that happened to her. Um, and she sort of builds a life for herself in the big city and um, becomes uh, a banker and joins this very sort of capitalist way of life um, and sort of all of her life becomes about success and um, and about sort of uh, have, having all of the best stuff and having a cinema room in her home and then she comes back to the village where she grew up because she has uh, a plan uh, for, I don't know if this, this is too much spoilers, but she has a plan for, um, wants to investigate potential for making profit in this in this village, um, having been sent down by by her a client who owns the land. And when she gets there, she discovers that all is maybe not quite what it seems and her grandmother is some sort of... Uh, leader of this village and um then finds out sort of the reasons that the village is is the way that it is and is sort of off grid and why that is um and then there's sort of this undercurrent of the mermaid mythology like you mentioned so um sort of thematically it sort of reflects the idea of uh, again being more than one thing and falling between two different sort of types of identity also the idea of like going away and then coming back so like a, a mermaid or a selkie might come to the land and then eventually go back to the sea um is sort of a, a theme throughout the play lovely also there is a lot of singing and music in this show can you tell me about how that uh yeah how that came about how that's featured in the show where the voices came from yeah, so the play is uh, a three-hander, but it's set in this village and the village is sort of, the people of the village rather, are sort of very much in the background of the play and we wanted to find a way to bring them to life as much as the sort of three characters that you actually see on stage. So um, we have created a an all-female digital community choir. Um, so that has come from uh, my choir, London City Voices, and um, musical director Becky Reed has a choir of her own uh, up in Oxford, uh, Oxford Community Choir. And we just recruited people from those two groups and they all uh, submitted their part out of the four different parts that there were to the music that Becky wrote. And then Becky sort of went away and stitched it all together and created this wonderful soundtrack. And we also have sort of traditional folk songs by traditional Cornish singers. Um, and yeah. I should I should jump in here and say because uh, I don't think we've mentioned uh, this is set in Cornwall. This is very much a, a, <laughs> a location based play. Forgive me, I know I should know this. Are there 
are there any bits in the Cornish language? Um, there are little words here and there mm -hmm. in Cornish, yeah. uh, not, but the majority of it is, well, I would say really all of it is, is in English with the odd sure. Cornish words sort of thrown in, but they're sort of explained or sort of, it doesn't really matter if you don't understand what they mean exactly. Um, but there's Cornish uh, language featured in some of the music that happens sort of between scenes. So I'm going to ask you just one more question, and it's a question we ask to everyone, uh, and it's a bit silly, but what was the earliest theatrical experience you ever had in your life? This could have been watching something, being in something, seeing someone in a costume. As far back as you can remember, what was your first theatrical experience? Hmm. Uh, it's interesting because I it wasn't my first theatrical experience but it's one of the earliest ones that I remember and uh, I think it'll be there'll be a clear link between the, this this show that I'm going to mention and the sort of work that I'm making now uh, it was the Royal Shakespeare Company production of uh, The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe back in like I don't know it must have been like 1998 or something like that um, and again it had that sort of aesthetic of sort of creating uh, everything that you see on stage and creating the magic sort of in front of the audience um, so it really sort of depended on the audience imagination uh, in order to sort of whisk you away to, to Narnia I have quite a vivid memory of um, like a little tiny uh, train traveling across the stage um, which was quite magical to a sort of I don't know must have been about 12 um, and uh had lots of music in it as well so like it's it's very clear to me the sort of like link between what I make now and 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 my sort of earliest sort of big memory of seeing theatre um although I had seen some stuff before but I think also part of the reason that show was so impactful on me wasn't wasn't only that um it was a great production um but it was that um those stories were read to me as bedtime stories by my dad as well. So there was obviously something, you know, uh, very sort of sentimental in me regarding those stories and, and regarding kind of like the stories that incorporate something of the sort of the supernatural or, or the magic or. Um... Yeah. I mean, I think what's so interesting about Morven is that it kind of is magic and it kind of is not magic and yeah. it sits in a really nice place where you don't have to kind of make up your mind have a particular interpretation of the play but you still feel welcomed into both sides of that and that's quite a tricky thing to to handle yeah well that's all credit to Kate's writing uh Kate Webster the writer of the piece um has found this beautiful balance between it being quite like I said earlier quite a naturalistic drama but just having this little sort of layer peppered in of like oh there's maybe there's something else going on here and that's yeah that's the kind of writing that gets me really excited cool on that note um we will we will wrap up um so just to recap this is Malvern and it's coming to the Space Theatre on the 28th of March until the 1st of April there is also a live stream which is on the 30th of March so if you can't come in person um, also we should say that this play is also going to be in Oxford so if you're in Oxford you can also see it in person there but if you're not in Oxford or London you can still see it um, on the live stream on the 30th of March and for two weeks on demand after that. Cool thank you very much Lou have a lovely day and see you very soon. Bye!